Furthermore, the equation E is equal to mc square. And here's the discovery. I'm gonna make him an offer again. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome to this week's radio show, how, how isolated PhDs can get hired in industry. We're just going to set up a few things here and then we are going to start the radio show it's great to have you on. Please do me a favor and type in hello in the chat box, if you would, if you can see and hear me okay. And remember to change your drop-down menu, that little blue oval to all panelists and attendees. Good to see you on, Ella and Jeremy. Kermit, good to see you on, Toby. I'm just going to set up the live stream here, and then we are going to go right into our first segment. I'm going to talk a little bit about LinkedIn today share my story about how I totally messed up using LinkedIn and how I also used it as a crutch. So once we get the live stream set up, I will jump into that. Then we'll go to the show me the data section and we have a lot more for you today. So Lisa, if you can confirm that we are live in the private group and then hopefully soon we'll be live on Zoom as well. So if you're just joining us, welcome. We're gonna get started here very, very soon. Great to see all of you on. I'm very excited about today's radio show. We have on best-selling author, Dan Schabel. Am I finally saying that right, Lisa? And uh, we're bringing on Mike Marabito as well to talk about his position and how he got into it. Great to see everyone on. Hello, this is Cheeky Scientist Radio. I am Isaiah Henkel with Cheeky Scientist, and we have a great show lined up. We're, we are gonna be talking today about how you can get hired in industry using your PhD, even if you're feeling isolated, if you haven't been able to make progress in your job search, maybe you are relying too much on technology. We talk a lot about using modern technology to get hired, but sometimes you can use it too much. We see a lot of PhDs make progress on LinkedIn, make progress with uploading their resumes and, and getting past ATS software. Then they show up for a phone screen or a video interview or a site visit and they bomb. They don't know how to, they haven't mastered human connection. They don't understand that part of getting hired is not just knowing what to say, it's also being able to say it. There's the behavioral side to it. In a sense, an interview is theater. Okay, it's not book learning or book, book regurgitation. You can't learn all the answers to, to an interview questions and, and then show up to the interview and say those answers. You have to tell a story. You have to talk. You have to build a relationship in a single day. So how do you do that? We're going to talk about it. And it looks like we are live and ready to go. We have all of our members who are Cheeky Scientist Associates here with us. It's good to see you on, Jeremy, Naren, Palomo. Thanks for being with us here in Zoom. If you're watching the live stream over here, you can join us in Zoom as well. So today I wanna to start by talking to you about mistakes that I made 
in terms of relying too much on technology in my job search and uh, a kind of double mistake of focusing too much on my academic background and what I had learned to care about in academia when I started my job search. So specifically on LinkedIn, when I created my first LinkedIn profile, I did it because I needed a, a job. And I knew that LinkedIn was a tool for getting a job. So I created my LinkedIn profile and I put everything in my headline that I thought was important. What did I put on there? The fact that I was a graduate student at XYZ University, right? I put on there these, uh, a couple of the techniques that I had learned, the, the job duties. That was it. I didn't get any responses, of course. I didn't know why. Then I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I have to leverage LinkedIn. I got to get on LinkedIn. I got to reach out to people. I got to build relationships. I can find jobs there. I can apply to jobs there. And I did this for a long time. And I made some progress. I made some connections. But every time that the relationship needed to make a jump from messaging to talking on the phone or to meeting in person, um, I failed to make that jump, that leap. I thought it was you know, their job to do it. I thought they would ask me to set up an informational interview or they would ask me to get on the phone. Um, I thought that you know, talking, I pretty much thought, or maybe I just hoped that the entire job search could be done uh, virtually, right? The entire job search could be done just through messaging. And I realized I did a couple of things very, very incorrectly. And maybe some of you who are watching this live stream have done it. Maybe some of you who are here in the group have even done this too. Uh, I was using academic accolades and titles on my LinkedIn profile throughout it, right? I was really focused on my background. I thought, okay, I had an immunology background. I can only get a job if the job title is immunologist, which is very rare, right? If they're looking for an immunologist in industry, they're going to be very general. They're probably going to say, you know, scientist, scientist two. Uh, that's as specific as they're going to get. And if, if a recruiter or hiring manager is searching for someone for that career path, I didn't know this at the time, they're not even using the same LinkedIn as me. They're using a different LinkedIn and they're searching for the actual job title. And if that job title is not anywhere in my profile, I was never going to come up in the search. Uh, so that's one big mistake that I made. So I totally had to shift and think, okay, what do the people searching for me actually care about? And oh yeah, recruiters, hiring managers don't even have PhDs. So the things that I care deeply about, like my publications, the fact that I'm a graduate student, right? Or even using, like I used like sl academic slang, like grad student, or I've seen a lot of this recently, DPhil like capital D, then feel like doctor of philosophy, like nobody's searching for that. Uh, you have to change your mindset and, and put the job titles, the skills that that position requires, the industry specific skills on your LinkedIn profile. And then when you start messaging people, you have to realize that messaging is a great way to start, start a conversation, but it has to escalate to a human interaction, right? I remember the first time I had a phone screen, I had no idea how to talk to the other person. Uh, it, it was, it was very awkward for me. I, I like, I practiced, uh, interview questions. I looked up a bunch of interview questions and how to answer them with like short responses essentially. And the person on the phone screen I found out later was looking for me to tell a story. They were looking for me to talk about the context problems that I had, how I overcame them to actually walk them through. They were taught, they, they wanted to know what kind of person I was, uh, in terms of what I fit into their culture and could I build relationships with the people that were already on their team. This is what I mean when I say it's, there's a bit of theater. Like they want to know, uh, can you get along with people? Can you have a conversation that's engaging, right? How, how are you at human interaction? And a lot of us, especially at the end of our academic career, are pretty 
bad at this. So this is why we've brought on our, our special guest today, Dan Schobel. Um, he is going to be coming on and he's going to be talking about his best-selling book that has recently come out, uh, which, I'll show, which I'll show you a little bit later. It's called Back to Human. And he's going to talk about how you can use technology, right, to help you get to having human interactions that are going to lead, for those of you watching this, to better jobs, to actually getting invited to a site visit or getting a call back after a site visit. So very excited to have him on. We're also, we also have on Mike Morabito, who's a senior analyst. I love analyst positions for PhDs. There's all kinds of words that can come in front of analyst, such as competitive intelligence analyst, quantitative analyst, business analyst. Doesn't matter. If you see the word analyst, it means gathering data, doing research. You can get that job no matter what your background is. So if you're just joining us, welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Great to have all of you here. We're going to jump into our first section, Show Me the Data, but I want to share a couple of things uh, before we do that. We have a very special webinar next Monday. Next Monday, one of our advanced programs that we have at Cheeky Scientist is called the R&D Society. This is specifically for people who want to work in R&D, not people who want to be like an application scientist, right? Not for people who want to be a, an analyst like I just brought up, just people who want to work in R&D. You want to manage experiments. You know, you, if you like doing experiments, you have to realize that in industry, hopefully you're going to reach a level where you're managing the experiments. You're using your mind. You're not just a, a technician in a, in a lab. But if you're interested in R&D positions, you want to learn how to get into this kind of position, a, a prestigious R&D position, right? A, a senior position, a principal scientist or principal engineer position, or if you are, uh, you have a social sciences background, et cetera, there's lots of different R&D positions that might happen in the field. You could be doing research on the Galapagos Islands for a company. Seriously, it happens, and you're in R&D. If you're interested in R&D, this is going to be a great webinar for you. We have on an associate director from Regeneron and a, a senior uh, scientist from Genetech that will be joining us for this. We're going to walk through uh, how to specifically get into this, this career track, just go to cheekyscientist.com slash r-and-d-career-in-industry. So cheekyscientist.com, R&D, career and industry with dashes in between every word. We'll try to get a simpler URL next time for those of you listening to us by audio. Great to have all of you on. One or two more things before we get to the show me the data section. If you want to learn more about the R&D Society and how to get into it, good news, we have an enrollment for it coming up on Monday. We only open enrollment about twice a year. So this is a very rare enrollment for one of our most popular advanced programs. Opens on Monday, August, what is that? 15, 16, 17, 19th, August 19th. Uh, it opens at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The only way you can find out about it, though, is if you get on the wait list. Come to the webinar next week for sure, but get on the wait list, cheekyscientist.com slash society dash learn dash more. We'll put all of this in the post show notes for you. Finally, make sure you're going to cheekyscientist.com slash blog and looking at all the blog articles we had. We had one of our most popular blog articles last week that I wanted to call your attention to, seven powerful tips for PhDs to wow hiring managers with their resume. Definitely check this out. A lot of you have been submitting terrible resumes. Awful, to put it bluntly. Seriously, read this article. It'll help you get your resume in shape um, so that somebody will actually read it and it's not just gonna go directly into the trash. 
another great article that came out this week, five common phrases PhDs say that ruin informational interviews. Look, when you show up to an informational interview, it's all about the other person. You're elevating their credibility, asking them questions. Don't say these five things. What are they? Check out the article. And you can see all of our articles by going to cheekyscientist.com slash blog. Okay, so we're going to bring on Mary Truscott. We're going to go through the show me the data section with Mary. Hi, Mary. How are you? I'm great, Isaiah. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. I'm excited to go through this with you. So today we're talking about how to get a job, even if you're isolated. And there's kind of two parts to this, I think. I think the, the one part is you want to use technology to help you get your foot in the door, to follow up, et cetera. But I think you can also, on the other side of it, become too reliant and kind of forget to have the human interactions. You can show up to a phone screen, a site visit, and it's kind of awkward. Have you seen this in a lot of, uh, a lot of PhDs? Ourselves yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. yeah, we've been talking a lot in the group about coffee screens lately. Coffee screens. It doesn't happen on the phone so much anymore. You have to show yeah. up for coffee and navigate yeah. the cafe. Yeah. Yeah. So and why does this happen? Why has there been this increase in behavioral interview questions when that phrase wasn't around, you know, 20 years ago? It's because they need have to work side by side with you. So they need to test your personality. That's essentially what it is. They want to test your human yeah. interactions. And because we are PhDs, we like to, sh we like to start with the data. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull up the show me the data section. I found this figure that, I, that, that we've showed a long, long time ago, and I wanted to show it again because I think it's perfect for what we're talking about today. It's, it's how much more persuasive you are in person. And as PhDs, we want to see cold, hard data. This has been published and republished in the Harvard Business Review, Science Direct, and what it's showing here is that you are 34 times more influential in person than by email. Why is this important? Because a lot of you think that a lot of you stay safe and you stay communicating like I was talking about earlier by LinkedIn or by email and you want to keep the conversation there because you can think about your answers beforehand and then you can type them. You don't have to think on your feet, right? Um, but this makes you far less credible and people just, they'll just trust you 34 times more once they meet you. What do you have to say, Mary? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you think of it as well, if you're answering, say, five questions in an email in a conversation, those questions might not go in that sequence, right? It's back and forth with the person mm. um, to build rapport. So you, you need that response to see if the person's interested in what you're talking about, then you can say more. There's just so many elements yeah. that are important. Yeah, and if you, so if you look at this, for those of you who might be listening by audio, on the y-axis, we have compliance, just a scale of zero to 10. Um, the, in, in terms of the other person complying with what you want, like giving you a job. And then we have on the x-axis, face-to-face, it's a, it's a bar graph. Um, we have uh, a bar for predicted, like how influential or how much compliance you're predicted to get face-to-face -face, or how much people predicted uh, it to be versus actual. Um, and for face-to-face, -face, people predicted that on a scale of zero to 10, right around a five is how influential you would be, how much compliance you would get. Half the time, the, pe the person would comply to you. In reality, it's 7.15. So are you surprised by this, Mary? Because essentially what this means is, is that face-to-face, -face, you will get compliance 70% of the time uh, in person. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, it, it, it is surprising. This is for this is for like an a, the group of average people. I mean, it's pretty amazing. So if you, 
a lot of you are thinking that if you get in front of somebody, you're talking to them in person, you're going to blow it. No, no, no. You're blowing it by not doing that. If you just show up, if you're an, the average person, you have a 70% chance of getting compliance. So you have to get in front of decision makers. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I think it goes both ways too, if you don't mind me interjecting. I mean, you'll have a better sense of if you want to work with these people as well hmm. by meeting them face to face, right? Yeah. Oh, good point. Ways. Yes, you can interject whenever you want. That's a big word, Mary. <laughs> Very scientific word. The, uh, the second set of bar graphs is where, where I think the fun happens in terms of a paradigm shift here. So then it's comparing it to email, right? So people thought, here's the predicted, 5.53. So people thought they would be more influential by email, slightly more than by face-to-face. It's not statistically significant, but significant, but they thought they'd be slightly more. So either way, people thought whether it's face-to-face by email, about the same. Half the people will comply, half won't. In reality, what's the number of people who actually complied by email, Mary? Actual 5.53 times more, 34 that, times more. That's the, no, no, this is the actual. So what's this number right oh, here? Oh, point, point 0.21, sorry. No, I was pointing to the wrong thing. Point 0.21. So the actual people who complied, 0.21 on a scale of 0 to 10 of email. Almost no one. <laughs> so when you're, yeah, when you're trying to get people to do what you want by email, you're going to fail over 90% of the time, almost 98% of the time. That's a one way to look at it. I know that's like, that's maybe blowing some of your minds right now, but look at the comparison. This is why it's 34 times more, right? So what, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that you don't use email. It doesn't mean that you don't um, use LinkedIn, but it's just, it's a tool that's really good for following up, really good for maybe initiating contact, but if you're just initiating, you've never met the person, you got to find a way to get on the phone with them. You got to find a way to escalate it uh, to, to a, a more human interaction. And yeah. if you've met somebody in person already, right, these are tools that you use for following up. There's definitely their use, but you can't use them as a crutch only or you're limiting your, your influence and getting a job is going to be really hard for you. Yeah. I mean, there's more work that goes involved to meeting face to face, right? It shows you value right. the interaction and, and prioritize yeah. it. And that's, that's influential in and of itself. So. Yeah. Well, there's a famous quote, uh, showing up is 90% of it or something. Right. And this pretty much, I mean, it's 70% of it, according to this data, just showing up because you've taken the effort to show up. They've seen your face. They know you care enough to be there in person. So the next figure that we're looking at is from talent pool. What do you think is the key to success at work? Very simple figure to digest, but I, I like what it's showing here and it makes sense. It might be a bit surprising. So we have four circles here, different percentages, 32%, 30%, 25%, 13%. What was shown to be the most important, Mary? Building strong interpersonal relationships. More important than high levels of organization. <laughs> to the company. Yeah. To the company overall, right? So, the, so 30%, um, said that coming up with new innovative ideas was the most important. 32%, and I think they could choose more than one, 32% said building strong interpersonal relationships. If you, it's, it's hard to understand this if you're coming from a classroom of 10 people, right? Or from a lab of three people or five people. But the larger an organization gets, the more important relationships, communication, interpersonal personal skills are 
for bigger things to get done. And I think this is a leap that a lot of PhDs have to make and struggle to make. Um, it's more important than even having the best idea. Like we all think, oh, if I could just think of the next iPhone, right, or whatever, the, the, the next new big thing. But it ha- that means nothing if you can't get enough people organized around it. Exactly, exactly. If you can have great ideas, but unless you tell the right people and have the right conversations to build on that, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere. And this is why, so a lot of you are like, well, why is it true that my interpersonal skills, my communication skills are going to hold me back from getting hired? Absolutely. And remember the people that are the first, your first points of contact at a company, hiring managers, recruiters, guess what? They're highly trained. Some of them have degrees in interpersonal skills, human relations, human resources, right? This is what they do. That's what they're evaluating. When you're a hammer, the whole world is a nail. These people were trained getting degrees in human relationships. That's what they're evaluating you on. They're not evaluating on how many scientific techniques that you know or what you've learned uh, in terms of your PhD specialty. Workplace skill gaps. So this is from a, a specialty blog and it's looking at which of the following do you feel best? So a group of people answered this question, which of the following do you feel best defines the gap in workforce skills or the, or the gap, the quote unquote gap in the, the U.S. workforce skills gap? All right, so where, where's the gap in skills that most new job candidates have? It's a pie chart with five slices. The biggest is 44% of the pie, which is what, Mary? So, yeah, the majority of the pie in red, it's lack of soft skills. So everything from communication, collaboration, that's huge. Mm. Yep. Right. So, and, and, and so, and what's the second biggest, which is half of the one? Sorry, it might be a bit small here for you, but what's the, yeah. the second biggest? Technical skills. That's what we all focus on. Yeah. Oh, do I match the job description perfectly? Do I have exactly everything they're asking for? That's what we want to talk about in our resume, right? It's, yeah. it, you really have to show that you have the soft skills, the transferable skills. So yeah, so here's the data, right? Soft skills are the transferable skills. I'll give you an example. Some of you, they're not complex enough for you, so you don't think they're important. Uh, Your ability to do research, speed of learning, data analysis, data collection, um, time management, right? People management. Those are the transferable skills, and they are twice as important than your technical skills. That's how you have to look at it. The data is right there, twice as important. And in general, we see that. Uh, in the real world too. We see it with our associates. Like you really, you spent most of your life training yourself on the technical skills, things that you can mostly do by yourself and develop them. But a lot of these transferable skills involve someone else, right? There's that human interaction piece. Let's do one or two more before we bring on our first guest. Job skills companies want but can't get. This is from Bloomberg. And it, it's looking at this skills gap again, right? So they want certain skills and job candidates. Which skills can they not find? They surveyed 1,320 job recruiters at more than 600 companies to see what these gaps were. This is a snapshot. I'll show you. There's a, a great link here. Um, it's an actual interactive site on Bloomberg that will show you the less common skills, less desired, more common skills, still desired, and then the skills that are desired the most, but that people don't have, right? And that's what you want. That's where the magic is for you. The, the, the less common skills that you'll have because you're a PhD, you're less common in a good way, but that are highly desired. And so that's, that's what we're looking at here. And, and some of these are, Mary, strategic thinking, creative leadership. problem solving. Go ahead. Leadership, communication. We just saw that before. 
Yeah, I'm just looking at the, the other quadrants too, and those might be ones people would think of first, analytical thinking and so forth, but it's, yeah, leadership, all, this, all these skills that involve engaging with, with people at work, with your team. Exactly. Making a comment there. I think um, creative problem solving and strategic thinking in particular is something that you need to put on your resume. As PhDs, we think this is not going to help me get hired. Yes, it will, especially those first gatekeepers. Again, our hiring managers, recruiters that are looking for you to say exactly this. Like they're, they're being told we need people who can solve problems. They know that from their training. They're not, you know, again, they're not PhDs. Have you, are you, do you have the curse of knowledge? If you have a PhD, you do in one sense. You're too close to it. Like you don't think of creative problem solving. You think of some very niche specific type of problem you can solve and you think that's your specialty. But you got to be able to talk about creative problem solving as a whole. All right. So Mary, thank you very much for joining. Mary, you left so soon. I want to say uh, thanks to Mary. Please do me a favor and say thank you to Mary in the chat box for coming on for the show me the data section. We're going to jump in with Dan Shabell here very soon. Uh, I want to give him a, a quick intro here. So this is Dan. You're going to see him again here in just a second. He is a New York Times best-selling author and serial entrepreneur, Fortune 500 consultant, millennial TV personality, global keynote speaker, career and workforce expert, expert and startup advisor. He is the partner and research director at Future Workplace and the founder of both Millennial Branding and WorkplaceTrends.com. He has written the career uh, bestsellers, Me 2.0, great book, Promote Yourself, another great book, and his newest book, Back to Human, How Great Leaders Create Connection in the Age of Isolation. I know some of you are feeling this isolation. We like technology, but we feel like we can't get ahead in whatever our goals are. In this, in this case, for many of you, your job search, how can human interaction, right? How can letting go of technology as a crutch help you? That's where we're going to talk about Dan, uh, talk about with Dan today. This is his website. Just go to Dan, danshabel.com, D-A-N-S-C-H-A-W-B-E-L.com. You can see his book at the top here. Definitely subscribe, get his updates. Uh, check out everything that he's done. Very accomplished, uh, an incredible speaker, incredibly intelligent. Really grateful to have him here. Make sure you connect with him on uh, LinkedIn as well. Let's show him uh, how engaging uh, Cheekies can be, not just on LinkedIn, but maybe connect with him on LinkedIn and uh, continue to talk to him and, and maybe even have a human interaction with him at one point. And then finally, definitely check out his podcast, one of the best podcasts um, uh, that I've listened to. Uh, go to, go to danshabell.com, and we'll put all of this in the show notes. It's also in the chat box here, danshabell.com slash category slash podcast. You can find it on iTunes or wherever top podcasts are delivered. Last but not least, here's the book again, Back to Human. Get it on Amazon. It's a great book to add to your collection. Anybody who's searching for a job, you're trying to get your next promotion, trust me, read this book. It's going to pay off. And with that, we'll bring on Dan. I saw him a little bit ago. Let's see if we can get his video on. And there he is. That was quite an intro, Isaiah. Thank you so much. Hey, you made it easy. You've accomplished so much. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. 
And you think that August is the, the easiest month for me or for most business people, but no, it's, this is like the hardest August I've ever had. We just released our 49th research study yesterday and wow. we're working on two more for the next two months. Wow. That is incredible output. I think I did maybe 49 experiments in five years of grad school. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, that's pretty fantastic. So uh, yeah, I, I love the work that you're doing and uh, I love how many things that you're doing, but it all seems to make sense together uh, towards your overall mission. So, so well done. Thanks for setting such a great example. No problem. Yeah. And my mission is to help people at every phase of their career and also to make work more human. And because, you know, work, the workplace right now, it can be very toxic. Yeah. Uh, you see all these protests now at all the, all the different companies Right. And I think that now what's really, really cool if you, that you're seeing in the news all the time is employee activism. So employees are saying, hey, it, you know, we want a company to align with our values. And if it doesn't, we're going to protest and either search for a job elsewhere or not even come into work. So this is we're living in a very, very unique, special time here where companies are under more pressure than ever before to enhance their work environments, to make it healthier and to cater to employees with flexibility and, and just yeah. really servicing their needs so that they can grow and be, and be protected and feel safe at work. Yeah. And I know that's part of the reason that you wrote your new book. So, I mean, what was, you know, if you had to drill down to the, the two or three things that happened to you, there's always a triggering, right? As an author, there's always a triggering moment. Uh, for writing this book. So for your, for your newest book, what, why did you write it? There's a combination. Number one is every book I write helps people get to the next phase of their career. So me 2.0 was college to first job, promote yourself was first job to management. And there's a leadership book. The second thing is I was interviewed for a documentary that's coming out next, next year called the revolution generation. Wow. And in the documentary, it paints the portrait of my generation of millennials. Right. And, and during the interview, I was asked, what's the biggest issue that we're facing as a generation? And I, I, you know, I talked about the student loan debt crisis, which is over $1.53 trillion, outstanding now. I talked about you know, income inequality. I talked about global warming, all these huge issues, world war. And then in my head, I'm like, okay, but what's really affecting people on a daily basis? And to me, the biggest thing that's affecting people is this feeling of isolation. The feeling that even though we have access to so many people, we can use these technology devices to reach across geographies. You know, you mm -hmm. could connect with someone in the Philippines right now, and maybe you couldn't have before unless you traveled there. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, all of this technology use has made us feel more isolated because we're dependent on it. And technology companies like Google and Apple, you know, and, all, and Facebook, they are purposely creating devices and apps in order to get us addicted because that's their business model. They profit off our attention and therefore we are the product. And mm -hmm. so just knowing that is, is kind of liberating. It's like, okay, now you're, you're aware of what game is actually being played yeah. and it can be at our expense because every time we look at a device, we're not looking at a person and we're made, we're you know, tribal, we're made to be in packs, to be with other people. And if we constantly rely on the technology de devices and use them as a crutch at work and even at home, it can make us feel more lonely. And then that, that's really bad for our health. No, I, I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the you know, attention, whether it's called the attention economy, et cetera. Like uh, in, for a lot of the, our listeners here, you probably have heard of Beckman Coulter Medical Instruments. It was bought by Danaher for like $6 billion. And then Facebook, if, you know, a few years ago, bought WhatsApp for like $13 billion. Like a messaging app, just because it's where people's attention were going, right? So it is the most valuable uh, commodity on earth right now. And, and what I'm curious to know from you is, 
how are businesses failing in this area? How are businesses making their team members more isolated with technology? Well, the reason why companies are promoting collaborative apps and the use of technology is because they basically, in a sense, take advantage of workers. We're always kind of working. There's a reason why the World Health Organization said that burnout is now an occupational phenomenon. It's something that I've actually studied a few years ago with Kronos. And when I wrote an article about the burnout epidemic, Bernie Sanders shared it to over a million people. And it's wow. important because people are working more hours because of work creep. So technology, it's a double-edged sword technology. Hmm. Technology gives us the freedom and flexibility to work when, where, and how we want. So there would be no such thing as remote work with yeah. uh, technology, right? So right. that's a great thing. People are excited yeah. about it. They're emotional about it. It's, it's good. I'm working from, I mean, this is my apartment yeah. right here. You can't tell. Uh, but no one talks about the dark side. Mm. And so through my book, through my work, I'm, I'm revealing the dark side of, okay, be, you know, because we have all of these, you know, abilities to work wherever we want, at the same time, not being in the office, not being around other people can make us feel more isolated and lonely and actually make us less productive. So, you know, in a sense, companies are like, okay, we have this technology it is a cheap, cost-effective way to scale communication within the company. That, that's mm. really what they're trying to do, increase, you know, efficiencies and all that. So they, they have their business case for it. But the big drawback is that we're always kind of on. We're on 24-7. Mm. Not having your phone is a new vacation. After work, out, work hours, what are work hours anymore? On weekends and on vacation, people are using their phone and responding to business texts. We did a study with Randstad, the largest staffing firm in the world. And yeah. like, I've done like three or four studies with them. And the one this year, what we found is that about half of managers expect their em employees to respond to business email on vacation. So there's an expectation. And so if you're on vacation, you're not really on vacation. If vacation is time spent away from work, if you're doing work. Yeah. And, and that has all led to burnout, unhappiness, and it actually hurts companies. So in, in, the other, in the other study, we found that half of all attrition is due to burnout. So companies might think that they're benefiting from having workers always doing work and responding to business emails and being engaged. But in a sense, every time you have to replace a worker, the cost is even more. Yeah. And you can't, you can't fully maximize an employee if they're burned out, if they're just exhausted. They're just not going to be as focused and engaged in their work. So it actually backfires. Yeah, so over time, it, the, the, the deficit that you're building up is not worth the uh, benefit you think you might be getting. Um, so, so this is fascinating to me. So what do you, let's talk about what success looks like. If you, if you could go into a company, a Fortune 500 company right now, totally restructure it. And of course, let's say you got to, don't worry about any of the change management stuff, the timelines, whatever. What would you go in and do? How would you set up the culture? Would you get rid of technology? Would you give certain times that people could work? How, how would you organize it? It's such a complex problem and it's so specific to the type of company and industry, right? Yeah, it's not about getting rid of technology. It's about yeah. how we're using the technology and in which situations. Because mm -hmm. in some ways it can be appropriate, in other ways it's not. Yeah. Right? And we want to treat people like adults as well. So we need technology to compete. We just have to be smarter as leaders about how we're using it and our expectations of it. And I think this really comes down to the relationship that managers or leaders and their employees have, right? Mm -hmm. And so like people being open about it. You know, if you, if you want time outside of work for your personal life, which everyone does, regardless of your age, then you got to have those conversations. You know, mm -hmm. I think the most important thing is you just have to do a great job. And then that allows you to open the conversation, to, uh, a human conversation to yeah. figure out what the boundaries are. Without boundaries, 
Mm. you know, there's going to be big issues because you're going to be taken advantage of. And do you, have you seen any company implement something that worked really well that you're on board with? Like, did they do something company wide in terms of individual boundaries or did they limit things in a certain way? I'm just curious if you have any examples um, based on, on, on your work. Yeah, I do remember reading about Jason Fried. He's the, he's the founder of, uh, you know, uh, 37 Signals, which creates yeah. Basecamp and other products that a lot of people use. His company is very unique in this way, but, you know, you can't respond to business email outside of work. Like there are true boundaries for every employee, not just a handful. So I have heard of that. Yeah. But typically there aren't many boundaries in the workplace. And yeah. so that, that's why I study other countries, you know, because mm. I think other, you, we can learn a lot from other countries. It's like Michael Moore had a documentary where he went around uh, to different parts of the world and examined what they're doing. So for instance, you know, Finland is free education. Yeah. And why is in America doing that? In France, in like elementary school, they give like really high end food. Like you're having, if you're like six years old, you're having escargot in, in elementary school right? And so we used to serve good food and then the food industry took over all that. So it's, we've lost our way as a country. And I, but I also look at the, I think the UK is such a great example, right? 9 million people are lonely, 200,000 adults in the UK haven't spoken to a close friend or relative in the past six months. Huge loneliness epidemic. There's a minister of loneliness uh, in really? the UK to try and solve a problem. It's an epidemic there. And so what they're doing, they have a whole action plan, right? They, the government is saying we're going to provide companies the tools and over 800 companies have signed up for this and an action plan that they can execute at their company, such as like training about loneliness and mental health and, and how to deal with employees who are suffering. So that's part of the solution, right? It's, this is not, we're not even just talking about corporate America. We're talking about entire countries have to do something about this. Yeah. And, and that's why I think it's important. I mean, and the other thing I talk about a lot is friendship at work. You know, if you have friends, especially best friends, you're more engaged, happy, and you're less likely to leave. That's Gallup's old research. Tom, La- Tom Rath led that many years yeah. ago when he was with Gallup. But for my study with Virgin Pulse of 2,000 managers and employees in 10 countries, we also found that people are lacking work friendships. And mm-hmm. if we're spending a third of our lives working, so it's a third of our lives working, a third of our lives not working, and then a third of our lives sleeping. So if we're spending so much time working, if we have a bad work experience, that affects our personal life. Because Mm. it's not like, you know, if you go to the office and you don't, you know, have good relationships with your coworkers or your leader is taking all the credit for your work, you're in a toxic environment. It's not like when you come home, that disappears. Right. Unless you're an actor or an actress, right? Like that is going to affect your personal life. It's going to affect your relationships with your, you know, spouse and your children and your friends because in conversation, you're going to complain about work. Yes. That's why, that's why, in my opinion, you know, with this book and everything I'm doing, it's so important to make work a healthier, better place because mm. that doesn't just affect our work lives. It affects our entire lives. Mm. Yeah. And I, I really like what you're talking about here. Cause what you're saying is the solution is the human interaction side, the communication, the building better relationships. So it's something you look forward to so that the lines of communication are open to communicate boundaries. So and so, here's what's really interesting too, Isaiah, yeah. is when we, asked, when we asked managers how and employees how to create a better work and healthier work environment that feels more human, it really had nothing to do with the office or remote work or any of that. 
it had to do with having offsites. So people are more likely to open up and form strong bonds in the workplace when they're not in the office, when they're engaged in a team building activity or having dinner together. Mm. Because think about it, if you are having dinner with your colleagues or you're doing, you know, we have in New York, escape the room, right? I don't know if you've heard yeah. of this, but the escape you know, room. For, yeah, yeah. I did it for my birthday. You go in, a lot of teams do this. You go in and you work with, let's say 12 of your friends or in this case, coworkers and this clues all over the room and you have to help, you know, work together to solve it. Um, people are more likely to open up because you're not in a work situation. If you're going to an office, you're more likely to talk about work, mm. right? Because that's the context. But if you're not in that environment, you're more likely to open up about your personal life. And the best way to create a bond is to talk about personal things, not work things. Fascinating. And, and, and the, you know, what the last topic that I wanted to kind of bring up along these lines, you know, we've talked about once you get into a career, here's what you can do. A lot of the people here are trying to get into their first career and they're really relying on technology for that. And then they get in front of an actual person and they realize, Oh, I haven't really practiced this human interaction thing too much. So what, what do you recommend for improving your human interaction skills beyond just practice? Like, is there, is there something that you've seen trends? What would help? Yeah. So this kind of goes back into why I wrote the book is I felt very lonely and isolated when I was younger because as an introvert, I viewed technology as a path to connecting with people and it was easier for me. Like the digital handshake felt very comfortable. And, but over time I felt isolated because I relied on that too much. So mm. my thought process is, you know, in order to build stronger human relationships, it's about using technology as a bridge to human interaction instead of letting it become a barrier between you and the people you want to connect with. That, that's really the summary of the book and the message and what I've lived through. And yeah. so, for instance, a lot of these digital contacts that I've been built off for over 10 years with all sorts of people, like one of them was my friend, Jenny. Uh, you know, I was the first to comment on her blog back in, I think, 2007, 2008. And we ne never met in person. Eventually, she moved to New York around the same time I did. We met up, and now we're be much better friends because of the human touch, mm -hmm. the human touch that you wouldn't yeah. get if you are you know, behind a make-believe internet wall. How did you – last question. How did you convince yourself to make that effort, right? Because as an introvert, I'm sure it's not easy for you to kind of reach out in person or even get out and do that. How did you become more comfortable with it? Was there any kind of uh, – Necessity. necessity necessity you know i think as humans we need each other to survive that's one of my big conclusions over the past few years of studying all this mm. i mean if you were i think about it if you're in solitary confinement you're gonna go crazy and probably try and kill yourself right and it makes sense because we need other people other people to give us meaning um for for safety for security for everything Right. So I think it, I think it was necessity. I felt like I had no choice, but to push myself out there because otherwise it was hurting my health. Yeah. And for those of you listening, I think the key is to get in front of that. <laughs> Don't wait until the pain is so bad. The loneliness is so bad that you have to do something drastic. If you know it's good for your health and good for the health of your career, um, it makes it easier to, and you brought up, you brought up a really good point, just like any muscle, you have a soft skill muscle and that'll atrophy unless you use it. For instance, the easiest example is if I'm at home writing all the time and I'm not making effort to get out and then I go to a, net a networking event or I meet someone, I feel awkward because I haven't been using it. Mm, exactly. That's right. And uh, the awkwardness uh, muscle starts to, to get bigger over time. 
Sure. Isolation. So Dan, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate having you on. Please, everyone that's here in the chat box or watching the live stream, uh, say thank you to Dan. And uh, Dan, congratulations on all your success. Uh, the, the book is here. Let me share it while we still have Dan on. I like to get him, I like to have his face next to his book here. There we go. Back to human. And please get his book today, but also go to his podcast. Sign up, subscribe to his podcast, Dan Chabel. Um, really, really great podcast. It's on iTunes. I mean, everywhere. It's, all, it's, it's everywhere you can find podcasts. So, Dan, thank you so much. Thank great you, my friend. You. Be well. Thanks, everyone. All right. Excellent. Really, really fortunate to have Dan on. If you haven't thanked Dan yet, please do so in the chat box or wherever you're watching in the comment box. Are you a PhD student or postdoc who wants to get an industry job? Are you tired of being paid one third or less of what you are worth in academia, but you don't know where to start? Maybe you've been uploading resumes over and over again, but you haven't heard anything back from an employer. Go to phdsgethired.com and get our free materials on how to get hired in industry. All you have to do is go to phdsgethired.com put in your name and email address, and we will send you our resume guide, our networking scripts, and our other free trainings to help you start your job search now. Again, just go to phdsgethired.com. We're going to move right along now to our next guest, Michael Marabito. And I'm going to pull up his bio. I'm going to introduce Michael here. Very excited to have Michael on. Haven't seen him in a little while. Uh, let me let me share my screen here one more time. There we go. So this is Michael. He is a senior analyst uh, at VP Biotech Equity Research. He is in New York City. Has led. Uh, he is the lead analyst on four uh, mid-cap biotechnology companies. Previously, Michael was a senior associate on the U.S. large-cap pharma team prior to joining uh, Credit Suisse, I think I'm saying that somewhat right. Uh, he was a scientific administrator for the Department of Genetic Medicine at uh, Will Cornell Medicine and a postdoctoral research scientist at Columbia University. Uh, Michael's LinkedIn profile is here, linkedin.com slash IN slash Michael Morabito. Let's get Michael on. I saw him here a bit earlier, on a bit earlier. And what we're going to be talking to Michael about is how he got into this analyst career. What does he do? Where is he going? Michael, good to see you. Good to see you too, Isaiah. Yeah, it's been a while. Thanks for coming on the show. I was it, excited. It, it, has, it has definitely been a while. It's been a long time since I've been active on the group. That's all right. You've been busy for sure. So congratulations on all your career success. Thank you. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, Michael came into the Cheeky Scientist Association. Uh, he's transitioned since then. His career has really taken off. And the, one of the things I'm interested in talking to you about is, of course, I want to I know how you found out about this analyst career path. But I think it's one of those career paths that PhDs just don't realize that they're perfect for. Yes. Analyst, yes, by absolutely. definition, is exactly you learn how to analyze data in a, whatever yes. PhD you get. So how did you find out about the analyst career path? And how did, how did you... Uh, know that it was the right path for you? Uh, really, it was just, uh, you know, doing some research through the association, through our postdoctoral uh, association uh, at Columbia. They had a little bit of information on it, uh, but uh, there, there really wasn't much known about it. And it was only after talking to certain people and actually realizing that there were PhDs doing this job that it, that 
that I could actually do it. And I, I never thought of that because my, my job, what I do is uh, if you watch, you know, CNBC and they have a, a guest analyst on and says like, I am a buy on Facebook or something like yeah. that. I'm one of those guys now, like I'm not on CNBC or anything, but that's what yes. I do. Uh, and so I, I used to invest back when I was in graduate school. Uh, at, and uh, sorry, when I was an undergrad, when I went to graduate school, I didn't have any money or time. So I, <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but basically I learned, I was like, wait, so I can take something that used to be a hobby of mine and then I can pair that with my degree and my experience. And that actually makes me a good fit to do this and make a career out of it. I was like, all right, sign me up. Yeah. And I think, you know, expanding beyond the type of analysts that you are, I want to talk a little bit about that, but there's lots of types of analysts. Yes, yes. You, I heard you mentioned competitive intelligence before. Something like that is definitely something. I mean, it's really anything, like you said, it's, it's analysis. That's why the job's called analyst, and that's what you learn to do with, with, with the degree. And, and it's how to take certain forms of data, whatever they are, and make sense out of them and come to a conclusion. Yeah, and, and there's a, such a thin line today between like so people talk a lot about data scientists it's like a new hot career but there's two types of data scientist positions and that job market split in half there's people that need to know like the computer programming or machine learning side but there's another half of that market which is essentially a data analyst that's just the ability mm -hmm. to analyze collect and look at data mm -hmm. and, and again i'm just talking to all of you who may not have considered this like wait there's really a huge number of jobs out there that just need people to be able to look at data and dig through it. Yeah. So, so maybe you yeah. can talk about what you do as an analyst on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, sure. And that's, uh, that's one of the interesting things about the job is day-to-day -day, every day is different. Uh, so uh, what I do is I work on what's called the sell side of equity research, where we generate research products. Our opinion is our product. Uh, and so we take, we cover a certain number of companies where we are what's called a covering analyst. Uh, when I was on the pharma team, it would have been like Merck, Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson, Bristol Myers, Eli Lilly, all the companies that a lot of the cheekies are, would love to work for. Um, but I analyze them from an investor's perspective of, you know, it's, it's a, you know, how's the science doing? How's the, what's in the pipeline, the drugs that are on the market, how are they faring? Are they selling as much as they were? Uh, are they growing? Are they being beaten by competitors? How did And then it, there's the new products that are coming. Are they going to replace an old product? Are they going to be first of a new generation of products to treat a certain uh, illness uh, or, or disease? And, and it's combining all of that information together, plus with the financial health of the company. Do they have enough money to run all of this stuff? Are they burning through their money too fast? Do they spend too much? Uh, and uh, combining all of that together to say, do I think that the stock where it is right now is fairly priced, underpriced, or overpriced? Yeah. Uh, and it's, but when I say the day-to-day, -day, you know, that could be, you know, uh, AbbVie could re put out a press release on uh, rheumatoid arthritis this morning, but then this afternoon after the market closes, Lily could put one out on diabetes. And so you just have to transition back and forth through all of these different uh, uh, diseases and therapeutic areas and be able to just jump straight from one to the next. Uh, and all day long, you have clients calling. They want to know because you wrote something a couple days ago. They just got around to it. I was like, oh, could you tell me more about this? So uh, you never know what they're going to ask. And as soon as they ask, you have to be right back on. Like, oh, yeah, I wrote that five days ago, but uh, now I'm going to talk about that. And so really, a lot of the day is dictated by what happens in the market and what the companies do. 
Yeah. So let me, and, and let me make this more general for those of you thinking, well, I don't want to work in the stock market, whatever it does. It doesn't matter. So we, we've had people in the association get hired at Home Depot, Hilton yep. Yep. for these researcher analyst positions. Basically what you're doing is you're looking at a market, whether it's the stock market, Home Depot's client market, right? Whatever it is, some consumer data, doesn't matter. You're looking at data from a market. Usually it could be a variety of other types of data. You're analyzing it and then maybe you're putting out reports, right? That's what you're basically saying. Uh, and it's very yeah. similar, just moves a little bit faster than what you, you're doing right now. Collecting data, analyzing mm -hmm. it, looking for the trends, and then writing a report about it. And so I, I just, I wanna, don't want you to overcomplicate this, those of you who are listening. There's all kinds of these analyst yeah. positions, researcher positions, et cetera. So what do you enjoy about it in industry, right? In general, like why is this data collection reporting process more fun for you, more enjoyable for you in industry versus academia? Uh, well, really it's because I use like the PhD level critical thinking skills daily in this job. Yeah. Whereas as a graduate student or a postdoc, you, know, you don't really use those critical thinking skills all the time. A lot of times it's just like going through the motions of, you know, on a microscope, at the bench, doing PCR, in the mouse room, whatever you're doing, you know, you're not thinking while you're doing that. It's more, it's more manual. And, and so really when you come time that you're, you're trying to design experiments for a grant or you're trying to optimize a protocol because you, because you didn't get the result that you wanted, uh, like those types of skills, that's the kind of thing that I have to use literally on a daily basis. Hmm. It's so very interesting. You're getting to use your PhD skills more now in industry. Much, much more. Hmm. And so if, if we have somebody here that's interested in getting into an analyst position, let's just say in general, an analyst, maybe it's not exactly what you do. Mm -hmm. Where would you start? How would you start looking for these careers? What skills would you sharpen? What transferable uh, skills are crucial? I would, I would say you have to, for, for what you're going to do, I mean, mine's very specific to finance, but for whatever type of analyst position you're going to be looking for is you have to find out what the people that are in those roles have done to get to that point. Uh, and so, I mean, all I can really do is speak to myself because it was finance was you have to learn about corporate accounting. You know, I didn't have to go get an MBA degree, although that would help. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's some very general things that you need to know as, as basic background. Uh, if I wish I had done that while I was still in the academic environment, I could have gone, you know, tried to audit a couple business school courses. I know some schools do a PhD MBA dual degree program. That would be an excellent path to do something like what I do. Uh, but it was really then just trying to find resources to self-teach myself uh, about different aspects of that so that I could actually, actually come in and show that I was making progress towards trying to make a career transition. Yeah. And so let's dig into some of those skills other than, you know, what we've talked about data collection analysis. Are there yeah. looking back where there's some key transferable skills that you've either learned on the job or mm -hmm. realize now that you did learn during your PhD that are important for analyst positions? Uh, actually, uh, one of the main parts of my job is compliance, uh, because of being wow. in the financial industry, it's very heavily regulated in what I can and cannot do or say when and where, like I, I can't talk to the investment bankers about anything because my job is to be pure unadulterated research. It can't be viewed as trying to gain banking business for the bank. So where it looks like, oh, well, I say this stock's going to outperform because I really want them to do IPO with us or something like that. Uh, I'm not allowed to do that. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of, of, of compliance and legal aspect to it. 
and myself, you know, I've done a lot of mouse work, uh, both as a graduate student and PhD. So everything I had to deal with with IACUC of like uh, make, making sure that I wasn't violating a mouse protocol or anything yeah. like that. It was good training for this. If you, if you do point. anything as a PhD with, with uh, 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 human clinical trials and you have to deal with, uh, I don't remember what, the, what, what that, I oh, never had. To more that. compliance, <laughs> yeah, like the FDA yeah. or whatever it might be. So I, th I think yeah. uh, that's great. So the, the compliance as a transferable skill, you know, this is why we see so many PhDs getting into regulatory affairs, et cetera, too. Yes. Uh, really, really matters. Uh, last question, Mike, I do appreciate you sure. joining you know, we have some people on who are going through a, a, a really tough time. Maybe they're mm -hmm. just getting started out. They've had, you know, a, a difficult path in front of them. Maybe they feel like they can't do it. I know you've had some times like this too. Yeah. Yeah. Go back and talk to yourself during those times. Mm -hmm. What What would you say? I mean, it's really, uh, you, you just, it, it's cliche, but you just have to keep pushing at it and working at it and working at it. Like I said that, you know, a, I got the position that I have now purely because of luck, but I put myself in the position to, to gain from that luck, you know, that by, by doing all the work that I did and continuing to talk to people. And I actually built a lot of relationships that didn't lead to a job at the time, but I've since talked with those people and, and they're now colleagues, you know, they work at different places, but like, you know, I've maintained those relationships. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's talk to as many people as you can uh, and just, learn from them and, and learn how they did it. And you'll, you'll get lots of different stories and none of them is going to exactly match yours. And so you just learn to take the pieces that fit yours the best and, and build yourself up. Mm, well said. So thank you very much, Mike, for your time. Great to see you again. Yep. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks a lot, guys. Be in touch soon. Thanks. Please thank Mike in the chat box. If you would really appreciate having him on and talking about his career path. I want to see a lot more of you, start going after these analyst positions. There's so many of them, so many of them. Um, and, and it's right in line with your training, no matter what your background is. So thanks, Mike. Yep, thanks a lot. This takes us to the end of the pub public streaming portion of Cheeky Scientist Radio. If you enjoyed the radio show today, make sure you go to our website, cheekyscientist.com and subscribe. And we will send you updates every time we have a new radio show. You can also go to phdsgethired.com and get on our wait list for the Cheeky Scientist Association. Key takeaways from today, remember your value as a PhD in job paths that maybe you haven't considered before, like anything ending with an analyst position. Also remember the importance of, a, of human interaction. That you can't just go from not having any human interaction professionally whatsoever uh, to jumping into a site visit and somehow performing well to get the job. Don't do all the work that you, you're doing now on LinkedIn, resumes, uploading, all the stuff you can do behind a computer just to blow it when you actually get in front of a live person. So make sure you practice. It's a behavioral thing. It's, it's theater in a sense. Uh, it's not so much just about putting the right things on paper, especially in the later stages of your job search. Thank you all. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Bum, bum, bum.